In this week's episode, I sit down with good friend, colleague, mentor, wonder advisor, Jeffrey Davis. What I know you're going to love about this conversation is that it takes us back to childhood and the permissions that we gave ourselves to explore, to wonder, to wander, and to, to, to be enough with going outside and enjoying a moment that we're in. Not instead of making a living, but so that we can make a better living while we're living a better life. Take a seat at the table next to me, Robin Ivy, and some of today's most meaningful thought leaders, mentors, and spiritual guides, and even some people like you and I, as we discuss their extraordinary lives and adventures in being human. Enjoy this week's episode. My guest is Jeffrey Davis. I'm so excited for you to meet him. I'm going to read his bio because that's easier. He is Papa to Two Girls and Chief Wonder Tracker. Jeffrey works with and researches innovators, social psychologists, writers, and leaders to discover how people flourish in times of rampant challenge and change. His next book, Tracking Wonder, Reclaiming a Life of Meaning and Possibility in a World Obsessed with Productivity, coming out in November, is the first book to uncover how you can foster six facets of wonder and activate your young genius, your innate force of character that can guide you towards your most meaningful work in the world. Through his community, company, and podcast, Tracking Wonder, he works with mindful change makers and organizations to advance their best ideas for a better world, with wonder as his change agent. He has presented at conferences, universities, and organizations throughout North America and beyond. He's the author of three other books and is a regular contributor to Psychology Today Online and lives in the Hudson Valley with his two young daughters and his wife, Hillary, who's also amazing, by the way, <laughs> and very worth mentioning, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Although my favorite thing about you came from our friend Jonathan Fields, mm. who I will say said, Maybe his biggest true driver, though, is to be the kind of adult whose life reveals to his daughters the grace and beauty and joy of a wonder that never ends. Oh, wow. <laughs> he said so, that about me? I know. I know. I was going to write that, but since he already did, Jeffrey, I was like, I'll just let Jonathan take that one. <laughs> wow. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> what I feel like is people should know is I actually felt like um, when I was talking to your assistant about what I wanted to talk to you about, I thought, well, thankfully, he already called it in his title of his book. Because mm. Had you not called it that, I would have still been asking you about that. Mm. Reclaiming a life of meaning and possibility in a world obsessed with productivity. So well, how about we start there? Yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Um, you want... Uh, is there a question there? You want me to just like start talking about well, that piece? Because about, like, that did, is, you know, like yeah. I was thinking about knowing that, like, you, you know, when I think of you, although I think of you first about wonder, I also immediately connect you in my mind to mindfulness. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and in part, because I feel most like a spaz in your company because <laughs> you are <laughs> right. Cause like, if, for those of you who don't know, Jeremy, he's so peaceful that, and I'm so not. So it's so lovely when I'm in your presence. I'm always like, I love this presence. <laughs> and I feel like this around, uh, you know, uh, but I, but I think that it's important that people know, like you have a real deep history of mindfulness that guided this work. So can you start about how you became fascinated with wonder and then how that became the title of your book? Sure. Sure. I could even tap into just a little bit about my background and mindfulness in the broadest sense, because when I was um, 
seeking mindfulness, that wasn't even a pervasive term. Um, you know, we were talking just before we got on call about, you know, when I was 18 and by the, by the time I was 19, I was questioning, I was at the University of Texas at Austin. I was questioning um, a lot, very quietly because I was, was and am an introvert. And um, so, yeah, I was questioning a lot of notions about, believe it or not, like success. This was a heavy thing in my notebooks at the time, like what is success and so forth. And, <clears throat> but I didn't have a lot of cultural context of support. Um, I had a couple of parents who just loved me unconditionally said, do whatever makes you happy, which was a blessing, but not that a whole is, lot. That of, is a blessing. But not a whole lot of guidance on how to make that happen. But they were like, good wishes, you know, <laughs> fairly well. We love you and good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But exactly. you know what? At least you got the first half because I do no. a lot of coaching clients that didn't get either of that. So. Most people I, I know and work with, I realize what a blessing So if you want to give me your mom's number, it'd be great. <laughs> she's 80 and she's still the same way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was really curious. The word meaning, believe it or not, was pervasive for me at that time at, at 19. And so part of my pursuits was like, I shifted my major from business into the humanities, into poetry, into philosophy and so forth. And was always pursuing how to live a meaningful life. How can I pay more attention to the world around me? Which was what led me to start studying poetry rather intensively it was a means to actually be more present, to focus on other people, to imagine their lives. And I was curious at 20, um, I took my first yoga series. I had to quietly leave, you know, my roommates so they didn't know where I was going because they would think I was, you know, just like one of those really hippy dippy people. This is in the eighties, <clears throat> but it gave me my first you taste mean before you were a hippy. Dippy? Yeah. Before I was a hippy dippy. Different. Exactly. Let's be real. <laughs> Used to live in Woodstock. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, you can bring out your Sasha fears. If you do, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, but it gave me my first glimpse of, Oh, there is another way because I have been peaceful but also a very busy mind. And it gave me my first taste of what an embodied experience could be like. That gradually led me years later up here in the Hudson Valley to um, be a resident at the Zen Mountain Monastery and uh, all as, a, as a, an approach to live life more artfully. That was my real desire, not only to quiet my mind, but how do I shape this life this life here in this body, in this world, not to escape it, but how do I really live it with presence? Gradually, that led me. There, there are some different layers that led me to wonder. And I'll just say in short, tracking wonder is a set of practices and a skill set that we can learn to practice and foster that allows us to be present to the moment that allows us to be present to possibility, even if not especially amidst rampant challenge, adversity, and change. And so we can unpack that any ways you want, but there was an actually crystallizing moment when everything you see behind me was uh, completely burned down. <laughs> that was a, that was a um, sort of a crystallizing moment to this well, Let's start there. So, it is kind of relevant to our times because um, I'll just speak to our times and this world obsessed with productivity. 
And it's um, funny because I just talked to Charlie Gilkey yesterday. Okay. Who is a mutual friend of ours and a productivity expert. Yes. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And Charlie's a very good friend yeah. for a long time. And, um, and we both, I think, understand productivity. I've watched him question the word productivity over the past few years as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at our world, um, I think I read a recent survey of mothers that 93% of them are burned out. And this is up only from 85% before the pandemic. 93% of mothers are burned out. Over 60% of surveyed teachers before the pandemic were burned out. That's before the pandemic, all right? And close to 40% of Americans expressed that they feel loneliness on an ongoing basis before the pandemic, right? So these were all these conditions in our culture of busyness that were already pre-existing mm -hmm. that the pandemic increased and boosted in so many ways. <clears throat> it's as if the culture has been operating this sort of default mentality for a long time that is getting disrupted. And so we all experience personal disruptions as well. And certainly I did several years ago. I'd just been like a few years into this journey of tracking wonder and possibly thinking maybe I could write a book on the subject, but I really wanted to I was like, I need to wonder more about wonder. And I just assume, I think I know wonder, which is like, you know. What do you know about wonder? Completely contradictory. And I have to keep on knowing what I think I know about wonder, which is a real challenge in writing a book about wonder. So um, yeah, my wife, Hillary, and I just bought this farmhouse in the Hudson Valley and had our dream sort of wind, uh, Walden Woods and Pond in the back and we were like, oh, let's build a new life. Let's build our businesses. Let's, you know, maybe build a family with little wonderettes roaming around. <clears throat> and then this crazy lightning storm ripped through the valley one July afternoon. Lightning struck literally this house, like just above like this, this room and sent a, a, a fire roaring through our house mostly decimated everything you see behind me, like 300 volumes of books, 20 years of archives, and my laptop, this is before I knew anything about Dropbox, oh. um, melted with my before next book. Dropbox and, but, yeah. Dropbox. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Ooh. exactly. So <clears throat> yeah, it's like the house literally burned down, but I think for many of us, we've had our own versions of our house of mm. reality burning down. Mm. And or, or our inner houses are always burning. Our inner houses, yes, yes. And we're burning out, right? Yes. So I came back the next day. It turns out we would be out of the house for over 15 months while everything got gutted and restructured and so forth. We'd had two miscarriages uh, about a, a couple of months before. I got Lyme disease three weeks before um, the fire. And so the next day I'm like really trying not to like take this personally, like some karmic force and, and, but I'm angry, I'm confused. I'm really shutting down, even though I know I can't afford to shut down because there's a lot of things that need to be taken care of. And I come back to this room to see what can be salvaged of this reality. And so I'm looking at those bookshelves, they're all charred. They didn't look like this. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see this, like pulsing this yellow is actually a morphed monarch butterfly that had flown in through one of the many holes that the firefighters had knocked in our ceiling and walls. And it's just there. And for just for a fleeting moment, I just paused 
and took it in and I just felt this opening. It was this, all my tightness and closeness dissolved it just for a fleeting moment, just enough for me to see the reality of the situation differently, mm -hmm. to see the strange beauty <laughs> amidst all of this rubble. Uh, and that I knew ultimately things would be okay and that I could navigate this. Hillary and I could navigate this. And I really did then start to question during that 15 months, some other deeper questions like, oh, this is the real practice of tracking wonder. I already had that phrase with me. I was like, no, this is the real practice. How do we and how do creative people ultimately thrive, ultimately thrive amidst adversity, challenge, change? How do we like really stay present mm with what is while still reimagining what could be. So those were some exactly deep questions I stay with me. what this is. <laughs> so let me turn it over to you. You said it so much yeah. better than I did. I was like, you know, because I, I, I feel like there's such an inclination about like the what's nextness of everything. And I, and I, I have that impulse in myself of like, let's get out of this moment and on to the next one, especially if it's not a ple pleasant moment. But at the same time, I think there's huge value in resiliency. Like I've learned through my own experience of cultivating resiliency that if I step over something before it's time, it will only serve to eat away at the foundation of whatever I think I'm building upon, mm -hmm. you know? And so mm -hmm. I wanted the coolest, smartest, interesting, thought-provoking people to like come on here and share with me and the listeners about like, how do we do that exact thing? Like, how do we give ourselves permission and the tools to be with what's here without needing this to be different and hold the space for that, be present to it, learn what we need to from it and hold the space somehow simultaneously to also start to generate a vision again and a connection mm -hmm. to possibility again. And to maybe I can let go of ideas or constructs of how it needed to be before, right? Like if we were already at 85 and now we're at 93% burnt out, well, maybe we can like scrap the whole thing since 85 wasn't the goal. Like I'm not, I don't want to get back to that. Right. right? Like, I'm not, the, was that normal? Right? Like, you know, like, I mean, I tend to not be so normal in my own mind. So I'm normal. Isn't usually the thing I'm striving for. Yeah. It's usually the thing I'm wondering about why everybody else is striving for. But I do think that part's so important. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you already spoke to them. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I um, I'm always questioning that phrase, return to normal. I questioned it over a year ago when, what you know, I, I can normal remember my, who? I can remember my nephew asking like, uh, you know, a couple of months into the lockdown. He's like, you know, how, how soon before we get back to normal? And I was like, there was no normal to get back to. And yeah. we're only going to move forward, I hope. But thank so, goodness you've had a lifetime of learning how to navigate the magic carpet ride. Right? I think that, yeah. And, and you and I were touching just a little bit about this beforehand that um, before this talk that I have, like I have um, framed challenges early on, even before the fire, I used to have this phrase of move toward the difficult. Um, you know, don't, I didn't have the language of don't bypass it then, but clearly there's a lot of bypassing, a lot of spiritual bypassing and emotional bypassing in our culture mm -hmm. of difficulties. So I already had this tendency to move toward the difficult. And then this framing of 
every big idea we have begets a series of challenges. So as we're imagining new possibilities, I think it's really beneficial if we just acknowledge that as we pursue those new possibilities, they will beget a new set of challenges that we sort of signed up for. And so that's okay. If we can normalize that, if we can normalize that a good life is challenging, if we can normalize um, that it means that we can approach challenges maybe a bit more easily and deftly, we don't have to like approach challenges like this all the time um, or flee, (laughs) then I think we'll be better suited, not just for ourselves, but for us as as a culture. And so, right, you you alluded to resilience, which is definitely something I've been looking at for, for quite some time. And um, can I mention just a study, not to geek out sure, a little totally. bit? It's completely relevant. So after 9-11, um, psychologist Barbara Fredrickson out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, was really curious about why some college students how they might respond to that trauma after 9-11 and why certain ones of them seem to be able to work with it, have some resilience, move forward, and others couldn't. And she and her team had identified um, certain experiences with certain positive emotions that correlated with those students who were able to develop, let's call it creative resilience. And Um, one of them is joy, one of them is gratitude, one of them is interest. And interest is really close to wonder. Wonder is so subtle. It's like the first of emotions that we have. It's like the first of all emotions, really. Um, But it's wonder and interest that are most correlated with our human ability to keep moving through meaningful endeavors that are going to be challenging. Right. I wanted to offer one more thing about resilience, which is in part of my studies of wonder and working with people. Resilience can have kind of this um, negative association of just like hunkering down and like move, like, come on, just move forward, like hunker down, get gritty. Mm. But it is the ability to expand our repertoire, sort of social resources, our cognitive resources, and our emotional resources to work with whatever's before us mm-hmm. in a more expansive way. And I've also been leaning more into the quality of fortitude mm-hmm. in addition to resilience. Fortitude is like the courage and the mm-hmm. strength to show up for what and who needs tending right. to. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. Like what, can I ask a question? You can, yes. <laughs> yes. I have a list and go ahead. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, when you are feeling resilient, does that feel like an open state or a closed state for you? Do you feel like you're closed and hunkering down and moving forward? Do you feel open and expansive? I, I, uh, for me, resiliency has, uh, or resilience has been a lot more about the expansion of it. I feel like I do a really great job of the hunkered down um, with bringing that energy to the moment myself without any 
You don't need any work there. I need zero support and bring in the like to the table. Nope, I'm good on that front myself. Uh, yeah, so I have found um, for me, like during this pandemic, I've been doing this uh, this workout called the class, which is mm. um, I'd never really heard of or done before. But ironically, the woman who started it, it came from, a, she had a traumatic childhood and she found that um, that by by doing one simple movement over the three minutes of like one song, right? So for mm. one one song, you're you're listening to like whatever, and and you're doing a bicep curl or you're squatting. Let's say you're just squatting for the entire thing. You're not learning a new skill. You're not you're not adding on to the thing. There's no other choreography to be done. You're just doing this one move of this squatting for the whole song. Mm. And in that, she learned that by ask challenging herself to do one thing, not a terribly crazy hard thing but like one thing consistently over this time that that when the challenge presented itself her mind had a response and as soon as it got like physically hard in a certain kind of way there was a moment that her head kicked in and started to have an opinion and started to have an attitude and started to have a story and then she realized like that's that in the same sort of triggered sensation outside in the world in relationship in everywhere that she would have she noticed she had the similar kind of like mental response to triggers. And so she learned or taught herself that in this practice, that if she shakes, you know, like you can shake yeah. her. So just shake for an entire song, yes. right? or like shake and do jumping jacks. And it's a real like nervous system reboot to on the one hand, challenge yourself with a simple motion to build the resilience of like, well, I can keep squatting, even though I don't think I can't, even though my racket is going the way it does when I'm in an argument with somebody or I'm in a fear state or I'm in a whatever, can I continue to just do this one thing consistently as I get noticing what's happening here? As it no, as I notice how this happening here is happening in the macro, right? Oh, and, yeah. And I love that because it's it's allowed me to sort of understand my resilience as like, okay, I get to challenge myself to be with the thing longer and, mm -hmm. my, and myself mm -hmm. in it, right? There's no running mm -hmm. from the thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not abandoning myself in the moment. I'm staying with this thing. I'm staying in the challenge. And I'm letting, I'm, I'm willing to let parts of it go that don't serve me anymore, right? I'm mm -hmm. letting, letting go of the energy that doesn't work. And I, that's really helped me. It's helped the body piece of resilience for me. I feel like I have a body response, a spiritual response, a sort of a mental version of things to, that I work with to manage that resilience. But yeah. Yeah, I love that. And the, they're all entwined, right? Mm. The, the physical, the intellectual, cognitive, emotional, like they're all part and parcel actually in this ecosystem within yeah. influencing one another in different ways. And so I love that so much. Could I riff it just a little bit totally. on that? Riff because, on. yeah, because that's so complementary to what I've discovered too, which is um, those triggers are in part are like default patterns. And quite often they're like these default downer patterns or pit patterns in the mind that can overtake our sense of what's real and true. Right. And we're like, oh, I can't do this. Or gosh, everything's just so hard. Or, you know, the world's burning, you know, it's on fire and I can't, you know, I'm just, I give up. Um, or right, I, I'm giving myself a little challenge and there's this constant downer default pattern. There's actually a whole network in the brain called the default mode network that is just like responsible for this ongoing chatter. And so, right, part of the work I found, the fundamental work is to actually identify each of our sort of default downer patterns because we all have them, I have them. And they're often about ourselves, mm -hmm. they're about 
the situation as a whole, or they're about other people. Mm-hmm. And so, and so if we can identify those patterns and disrupt them, detect them and disrupt them, and then open, like, as you say, just like really feel that pattern, like acknowledge it, open to it, mm-hmm. and then actually seek a surprising shift, which this shaking is a perfect example. Like so good. I, right. It's just like, seek a surprising shift. Okay. So I'm going to walk, but this is the thing that I always do. And this is the pattern I always have. Could I shift? Could I just go outside for five minutes and look up at the sky and shift and actually have a sort of surprising moment and then just extend that feeling extend that feeling of that shift. Like you're saying, just like stay with it. Yeah. That's part of the work of tracking wonder. I kind of just gave you a dose acronym, which is to detect the default pattern, disrupt it, open to it, seek a surprise and then extend it. Like that is where we can just get little doses of wonder in the moment. I was just talking with a client yesterday and this is it. He said, Fascinating startup founder, incredibly full life, like lots of buckets, genuine heart, really also interested in mindfulness and how to approach building the startup in a non-atypical way. And, uh, you know, I mentioned this and then he just gave me the perfect example of how he did this when somebody that he had been close to in the past triggered him and he was able in the moment just so like, mm, okay, I'm witnessing my default reaction to this person. I'm just going to open, feel that, not respond to that. And then we're going to seek a surprising response, which was to just like hold the space for this person, wish the person well. <laughs> it's a perfect example of where he got an in the moment dose of wonder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I think um, having been a commercial photographer before I got into coaching, I always use the language of default settings, right? Because on yeah. a camera, your camera, if you buy an, a high end yeah. camera, it comes already set. Like you can put it on the sort of idiot button, so to speak, right? You don't have to know that much about what you're doing. You can like, there's yeah. really a default setting. Like you set yeah. it for like, maybe they're going to be moving. There's even usually a, an image of some like graphic of somebody swimming. I'm like, oh, yeah. weird, but like, so you can, you already have these settings built in. And I feel like we, we really, we live with our default settings, right? And the pra- my practice has been about how, just noticing, like just creating that spaciousness in myself to notice how I do me in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I do me? Mm-hmm. And what part am I buying into? You know, like mm-hmm. which, which parts am I buying into? Which parts am I really attached to? What parts of me am I like really hell bent on connecting and stay on holding onto and why? You know, and like the pandemic's been a great opportunity to sort of sit in all of that soup and be with that. And using these other resilient practices, like I find I'll just, I I notice if I have an overload of energy, I will then just like squat for, I'll literally put on a song and just squat for the song or, or shake just because I've had the awareness now that my nervous system needs that. And that my, that I have, for whatever reason, I have too much inside that's like, wreaking havoc and it's good to like just flush it out you know it really like is have, it's like yeah. if you had to give a speech and you had to pee and you'd be like mm, a little distracted yeah you know? that's right you'd be incredibly distracted right yeah. so it's um, really like an offloading of, of like an offloading of, en- of excess energy really 
offloading, right. And, and potentially shifting, right. Shifting yeah, different traits right. within. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I have to unload it first and then I can like go stand in the sun or like, for me, it's about big vistas. Cause I feel like I look, I have a tendency to kind of keep things pretty close. Right. So, so I like to find, to like force myself to go find big, like wide horizons, right. Like, w- like for me, wide horizons create that big shift too. And actually nature, and nature, yeah. nature, my senses and big horizons. You're, you're right on. Right. So um, it's funny because uh, intuitively I've been drawn to horizons again, since I was 19 in Austin and I've tracked horizons for much of my life. And now recent studies actually correlate the ways that being in front of horizons or vistas can actually elevate our moods and give us experiences of wonder, if not awe at different times. So yeah, in fact, finding a horizon spot has been something really important to me and people in our community and the people I work with. And at this time and place, I would actually encourage everyone, regardless where you live, you don't need a beautiful vista. Mm -hmm. You just need a little distance. So Mm -hmm. one of the people I've worked with lives in Portland, Oregon, and she will actually go to the highest spot. You know, it's like the highest road in Portland for her horizon spot. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it allows you to do exactly what we're saying in our bodies. Mm -hmm. We are here in the present, right here at the spot, but we're also in relationship to the near future horizon. We're mm-hmm. able then perhaps to just give expansiveness. And there are also studies that corroborate that when we're actually looking up, we also feel elevated and expansive That's and we're right. looking at the sky. So if you have a horizon spot, this is a great time to be present mm-hmm. while also deliberately daydreaming about what could be. And checking in with the senses, right? Because as we're standing, as I'm standing there looking at the horizon, like, I love that I can notice the wind on my skin, right? Yeah. Or like, I really, I, I ask myself in those moments to take myself up on the opportunity. Like while I'm yeah. in the moment, then like how many of my senses can I connect with? Like how much can I be even more deeply in the moment? Almost like really like a mini vacation, you know? Yeah. So it's really interesting too, because you are a photographer um, and everything you, you described about the default settings on the camera is so true. Uh, and many layered metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the lockdown happened, the beginning of the pandemic in March and April, and family was home more and more, and we we're like shifting our experiences together and outdoors, I actually pulled out my Canon Rebel from ah. several years ago. And I'm definitely one to use the dummy button. Sure. But I was trying to challenge myself. I use my default settings <laughs> in life all the time. Yeah. So I started challenging myself to try to learn a little bit. I still don't know. Like I'm going to have to but take one you of your need courses. Anything, I, I yeah. know a girl. Yeah. yeah, good. I was about to say, I need I need a girl who, who can guide me because it's oh. actually been on my bucket list oh. actually to improve my craft of photography. Wow. So, but I did commit to trying to learn a few things on my own over the past year. And ended up creating like a 2020 slideshow for the family. So we could say, oh, well, we did find a lot of pockets of wonder throughout the year. What the camera does for me is really actually vital to to wonder. So we come into this world with wonder. Wonder is our birthright. Mm. And as you and I and others probably listening have experienced infants when they come into the world, 
They are wide-eyed with wonder, all eyes. They see, right? They're so open to everything. And it's very visual, our first experience of wonder. It's not only visual as we grow and evolve, but it's at first all eyes. And so part of the practice is to keep opening the eyes. Experiences of wonder do for a fleeting moment dissolve or disrupt our habitual ways of seeing. Mm. So we can see again what is real and true and what is beautiful and possible right before us and right within us. And so this requires some practice. You know, it's nice to say, but it does require practice. And mm-hmm. one of those practices is literally like to disrupt the default ways of seeing. I practice, I have other people practice too. Pause. So if you're at work and you're noticing everything is closing in, like we can only go for like 60 or 90 minutes of sustained focus and then things start closing in. You disrupt that default pattern. You pause and you gaze at just the smallest thing. And your eyes start to soften and your neural networks start to shift. And then you take a moment to praise, like just to find words of praise within toward that ordinary object, where, whether it's a glass of water or, or a paper clip or what's outside the window. And that's just a practice. It was actually a game-changing practice for a man who came to one of my immersives. And it starts to open your eyes. It's as, as if, right, those lenses of perception are, are cleansed just for a moment. You see things differently. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's one facet of wonder. So there, you know, I've identified. Like, there are, there are so many. Wonder is so multifaceted. But I did identify six just to try to, yeah. you know, form a book to help us in. Um, there's openness and curiosity, which many people are would be familiar with, but they really require the practice in these times. But there's also bewilderment mm-hmm. and hope, which are really important for our times. And there's also connection and admiration, which I found possibly the most important facets of wonder in our times. So bewilderment and hope are really vital to help us navigate these crazy disorienting times. Mm-hmm. A connection and admiration, Robin. When I think about um, the deepest suffering of our times, that again, we're here pre-pandemic that just exploded and their ugliness, I would say it's the constant, not just divisiveness, but othering of whole groups of people and of one another, the suspicions of one another. Mm. And um, so I'm feeling like a lot of my work and a lot of our work is, is yes, to navigate bewilderment so we can fertilize the confusion and mm. see who we could become differently, mm-hmm. right, with our personal identities. But also, how could, how could we be different together? But I think the awe part of how I experience that is like the more willing, and I feel grateful to have spent so much of my life as a photographer because I think having, you know, having the camera you can't take a good picture and be in your thinking mind, right? The ca- the ca- it's impossible. Like the, the camera forces, forces the disruption. In yeah. It. 
right? Yeah. And I, and the benefit of that forced disruption is then a lifetime of a lot of moments being in that state of wonder and mm -hmm. awe and seeing through that lens. And not just seeing through that lens, but the seeing through that lens actually creates a real felt experience in my body. It gets an embodiment. And I don't think that's any different if you're painting and you're in that, like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true only to photography. I think that's true of like that creative flow state of, of true presence. Um, I think it's unique to photography. But there's though, something it? interesting, like there's, it's so interesting to me with these cameras because with the phone, with the, with a, with a phone rather, because with a camera, it really went over your eye. Like it literally yeah. blocked, like there, it gave you a, a, a totally different substitute viewfinder. Yeah. And like, that's an interesting concept, right? Or it's been interesting to me to think about the state that photography offered me to, to enter into that I didn't really know it was offering me, but it was really like reaching out a hand and saying like, you want to get quiet and present, want to see some cool stuff. Come on. You know, you want, you want yes. to like learn how you, you want to learn how you are. You want to know the different feeling state between how you feel when you're super present versus right. Like the, it was a, it was a real gift in that. And I think the stacked moments of wonder also created me into being a person who sees things differently than people who do not live a life of in the moments of wonder, because living in the wonder is a very different place to be than living in the busy. And for me, they're very much like living in the head versus living in the heart. Like, am I living, am I living here from my perception of life? Am I living through this, this thing that, that monarchs in the corner or am I, or am I living through this? Because the camera has taught me that, I can do both. And the outcome is really different. Yeah. I love that. And I, and I love your work, by the way. And I love that you, you say, I see people for a living and uh, because we all hunger to really be seen. Mm. Yeah. And, but sometimes before we can be seen, we, we also have to practice the art of seeing, right. And seeing yeah. others differently. Hugely. So, yeah, I, I love that. And and I think, you know, part it offers, of I think it offers in like coaching, like when I talk to you, when I talk to Charlie, when I talk to other people who coach and mentor people, the people that I know who have lived in the wonder, right, who have who have showed up for the challenge and learned the lessons from the challenge and showed up for the wonder, that perspective is really invaluable in terms of being able to offer people a way to be seen that's that's different. Yeah, yeah. So I love that. It's so true. It's so true. In fact, I, I've just recognized that in part of my work with others, that, that that is part of my work is to constantly unbox other people. Mm -hmm. We all, so cognitive psychologists describe the adaptive unconscious, which accounts for about 95% of mm -hmm. our minds. So 95% of what we consider mind is Part of this adaptive unconscious includes the environment and mm. all these processes. And 5% is this little conscious mind that we have. So, so much is influencing that. And there are all of these unconscious boxing in of other people based on previous experiences or patterns. And so if we box each other in. And ourselves. And ourselves. So we box, we box in ourselves, other people, and our sense of what's real and true. And this is an ongoing practice of unboxing each other. So I, I want to push back on just one yeah, little thing, yes. which is um, mind and, and heart. So I don't see them as opposites. I don't see mind body as opposites. Um, they're all part of a continuum. And if anything, I, I think part of our work is to 
develop a new relationship with our minds because our minds are the filter mm-hmm. of, of everything. And they're part and parcel of our emotions. And um, I just want, I want us not to pathologize the mind's activities or our busyness. Um, it's so important because I find that people who get into mindfulness practices or meditation, they naturally become more aware of their mind's activities. And then they start to really pathologize it. And then they, they're in battle yeah, with right. their minds. Right. And they're like, oh, if I could just get into my heart, I would be different. And then it's almost like a right. mental bypassing. Right. <laughs> like bypass another, the mind another, altogether. It's going to stay in my feeling state. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I mean by that, Jeffrey, is I like um, about 11 years ago, I had a, I fell snowboarding and I had a stage mm. four concussion that put me into a semi-coma state for about three weeks. And then it was about a year of recovery. Mm. And it was so weird. I mean, it was really a very weird experience. Um, because my mind, having had sort of an ADD mind my whole life, I really identified with the busy mind. And for the first time in my life, my brain was too swollen to do what it normally does. It was too swollen to run its own racket which I wish everyone could have that experience because it is a really incredibly weird thing to not have a racket running because your brain's too swollen to run them. And that's a very weird thing, but it was a profound thing for me because it, it got itself out of the way enough for other ways of perceiving to be available to me. And the, what I perceived in that state was so much truer and Uh, realer. And it was just so much more what's real and what is than anything, than anything my mind could have filtered through it to articulate to myself about it. That I realized like my mind is actually in the way of me knowing this experience because my brain is almost too small. It's almost too small to process the thing that is. I, yeah. uh, it's like a very weird way of saying that, but it's not weird at all. I completely identify mm. with that. So I've often thought if I grew up in the nineties, I would have been diagnosed as ADD, not ADHD, right? Yeah, never yeah. hyperactive, but, but ADD. you know, they call everybody that I always, I keep saying, I'm like, I'm going to talk to the guy that's in charge of this because I don't, I don't think everybody should be H even though they all now everybody's only ADHD. That's the yeah. clinical, whatever. And I'm like, but I'm not like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I'm a little like this. I'm not done. <laughs> yeah. So um, because I'm highly distractible, but I think it's because I'm highly curious. Mm-hmm. And so I have attention abundance disorder is one of my clients called it. Yes. Uh, and so part of the work is to increasingly just become more aware of where my attention is. So I definitely have a, a very active inner worrier and um and I have for a long time, I just increasingly become more and more aware of it. And so there's a lot of activity that still goes on. I am peaceful. That's part of like one of my qualities that's been with me for most of my life. But I'm also, I also have a, a, a worrier. I call her Scout, like in To Kill a Mockingbird. She's a little girl who's always like poking yeah. around. And, and so she like gives me a list of things at like 4 a.m. that I should be worrying about. And then I have to like bring out my inner Atticus and say, okay, like I'll get, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I need to go back to sleep now. And uh, so, so I, I completely get with, 
that is a remarkable experience too that you shared. Um, it it was like a gift where oh, you huge. saw where and you I saw the pause. Like, a lot of people don't have that experience, and they get you know they have migraines and terrible pain and all sorts of things. And for me, it was like it was like a go sit under the Bodhi tree for a year and like learn some no figure know some things, and then yeah, then you know, yeah, exactly. So I think what I want um, to suggest too to people listening in is that. They don't need a house to burn down or uh, a series of tick bites or, you know, major head injury to pause the busyness in their minds or to pause their productivity treadmill. um, There is this opportunity, right, that we can pause our own inner busyness periodically, like every day, just sort of checking in Mm -hmm. and knowing that there is a different a different way. What we're not seeking, what I'm not seeking is to be in wonder all day long. Like that's impossible. It's like, you know, being in love all day long or being compassionate all day long. You're not spending every minute of every day having sex, probably. Yeah, probably not. not. Um, So you you want to, but we do want to up the ratio, right? We want to up the wonder ratio, so to speak. And and it is possible. And And to use it as a tool, right? Yeah, to, to use that as a skill set, really, to, yeah. to develop a set of skills, skills, right, that we can do to track, track wonder within our own minds and hearts, mm-hmm. to track wonder in our relationships, to track wonder at work mm-hmm. and at home, too. Yeah, yeah. you're a, a great dancer. Part of the way I sh- shake up uh, my default energy, too, is um, I do really bad dad, dad dancing, which I will yeah. never illustrate in public, but I put <laughs> on really, I really put up. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, at, they're at, already at, at 11. You're running out of time for that one. I've already run out of time, yeah. but I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> and it's only for them to see, <laughs> but I do shift their energy too sometimes yeah. in the morning as well, just to help them shake up their default energy yeah. as well. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about you. Um, you wrote a beautiful post about the 10 lessons that you learned have learned mm. in their tracking of wonder. Mm. And I feel like um, it's valuable to have spent 10 years I mean, I feel like you spent more than 10 years tracking. I have, yeah. Right? Yeah. But in that decade, like of the things on that list, what to you feels most relevant right now for, for helping people go from here into moving forward better? Um, people are beautiful and people matter. I didn't phrase it that way, but that's true. Um, in our culture, part of our particular culture in this country especially that is rippled out to other cultures is the idea of individuality and staunch individuality. And so I grew up um, in a culture implicitly sort of the water I was swimming in that if I was going to buck the status quo, if I was going to pursue a life of meaning that seemed different from everything around me, that I need to do this on my own. Like this was just the implicit unconscious um, culture that, that I'd taken on. But as I got older and, and started working in the world and started developing my consultancy and company and working with other people, I recognized that it was not only holding me back, the sort of do-it-yourself mindset, mm-hmm. the sort of DIY mindset that's so pervasive. It was also holding back a lot of other people It was just compounding the sense of isolation and loneliness. And I discovered, particularly in the past decade, 
the beauty of do it together, that do it together beats do it yourself every time. Um, like this conversation right now is so elevating, right? It's like, this is what we need. We are social mammals. We are mammals. We're biological mammals. We're social mammals. And so that's been one of the most beautiful gifts in my own experience that has rippled out word as well. So now a lot of people in the tracking wonder community talk about DIT or DIT yeah. beats do it DIY. And this is yeah. so important. So what, I would how, say, what does that look like when you say, yeah. do it? like, what is, how does that, how does that make manifest in a busy world of lone wolf? How do people, how do people go from lone wolf into that? Yeah. Um, part, part of it is first of all, just acknowledging that. So it requires a little barrier to overcome a little barrier, particularly for introverts or introverted people who've like carved their own path in different ways. Or like I've gotten here on my own, which is never true. Mm. So I'm right, about to, right, right. you know, this book comes out November, uh, mid-November of this year with Sounds True. There's an amazing team at Sounds True. They're amazing people have helped me write that book indirectly and, and directly. Um, not only team members, but community members and just my wife, my children, right? So it's such a DIT effort. Uh, I think there should be like a huge long list uh, under the byline mm -hmm. of that book. It's not just by me, so right. to speak. Right. So part of it is just like acknowledging, oh, maybe I don't have to do everything myself. Maybe I don't have to figure out everything myself. So then, hmm, instead of asking so much like, how am I going to do X? Who could help me move forward? Who could support me? Can I reach out to them? Can I develop a support pack of people, just a few people who can help me move forward? Or could I develop a, a wild pack, as I call it, right? A wild pack of just like, you know, maybe a few other people who are also wanting to move forward with a new possibility in life or in work or a project. Could the three of us, the four of us, like get together as a wild pack, whether mm -hmm. online these days or in person, mm -hmm. yeah. just like regularly run together mm -hmm. as a, as a wild pack and to see like what happens. Such a beautiful metaphor. And it's not going to be perfect. Right. So it's not like, so I remember, <laughs> you know, I try so hard to feel a sense of connection with my two girls and I just bomb all the time. Uh, this is just but part you of also the... succeed all the time. I, 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 I succeed I a lot. Really important because, you know, you do. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's not without a lot of practice though, sure. right? A lot of like, you know, Taekwondo wondering and maneuvering, but constant yeah, shape-shifting, constant shape-shifting. Yeah. But one time my younger daughter and I were walking together and all of a sudden she's like, wait, Papa, listen. Like I just bombed a previous connection with her. She's like, wait, listen. And then there were all these um, birds. Um, it, it eludes me what the, what the bird species was. These black birds are very common up here. Um, and they were in complete murmuration. I don't know if you've ever seen oh, yeah, murmuration, so but it's just cool. amazing, right? This whole flock of birds just doing these amazing morphing shapes. It's like watching a Van Gogh painting being yeah. animated in the air. And we were just like spellbound. It was like, and it was a moment that we shared together and bonded us too, and that we both could talk about. Yeah. But that's not always what DIT looks like. Right. But it does call up a yearning we have to connect at that level, mm. 
to be in sync with each other. I think it this, pulls up a lot of fear too, though. I can like oh, feel it. Yeah. I can feel it in my own body about the parts of me that struggle to be in community or yeah. in in transparency around the things I feel shame about, or I feel like mm. I don't want Jeffrey Davies to know that I don't know how to do, you know, like for all yeah, the things yeah, of like, yeah, oh, yeah. because I respect and admire you, I'd like you to not know. I feel like, um, cause I'm, I've had this opportunity to be in a team of six recently for the past few months. And it's been amazing to, to run in a six pack. Like mm-hmm. I've never done that in my life. Like I never was married officially. Like I, you know, I, I never did that before. So being able to be in and see that over, over time, mm-hmm. it's been so cool, but it also showed me how much it requires people to be willing to be honest, people to be willing to be brave, people to be willing to be vulnerable in front of one another. Um, and it requires an investment of time and energy and consistency that, that my average relationships do not, unless I want them to be better, which I do, right? Like it's showing me that like, oh, if I want my things, my life to be better and my relationships to be better, there's going to be less of them. They're going to be deeper, right? Which is something you said about like going like less deeper, right? In your system. Yes. About, what was the thing? Less deeper. And what's the last word? Right? Um, oh yeah. Less, better, and deeper. Less, better, and deeper. Yes, Focus exactly. Le- right? Less terrible. systems, better systems, deeper yeah. systems. Yes. Right. And I think yes. it's true in, in that too. Like having that pack creates a sense of potency. It also created a sense of permission for me of like, mm. and because I got to watch other people fumble and rise and fumble and rise, it's, it made me feel less unique in my fumbling mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I got to see up close and personal, like, oh, you fumble too. And then you rise and then they fumble and then they rise. So fumbling and rising might just be how this goes, not just some moronic default setting of brokenness of my own. Completely. Right. And I was like, yes. oh, well, that was helpful. I should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. So yeah. everything, everything you described, like fears are always going to surface in any moment of possibility, right? It's like the wonder zone is like standing on a precipice where you go, oh my God. And then you look down, you go, oh my God, right? <laughs> right. And so too, great, right? That, that's right? so great. Yeah. <laughs> it's that expansiveness. And this is like, ah, but this is also vulnerable. This yeah. is like, ooh, I'm yeah. not protected. It's exposure. So it's exposure. And so that is what, openness literally mm-hmm. biologically feels like yeah. because yeah. it feels like the boundaries have come down. The boundaries still need to be there. Right. They're just a bit more expansive and you're more aware of the boundaries. It, there is such an opportunity I have found in constantly growing and growing up, mm-hmm. right? Since I was 18 yeah. in relationship, not just personal relationship, right. which I'm always growing up, mm-hmm. but in working relationships too. Mm-hmm. Um, I've grown so much, I hope, uh, uh, being on a team than I was 10 years ago, right? And part of that I can actually track. And I was actually tracking it in my mind this morning. It was like from a state of closeness, protection, distrust, to a state of increasingly up, opening, upping the ratio of openness, trust, mm-hmm. vulnerability, transparency. It's not perfect. There is so much opportunity, though to learn about oneself in those types of DIT situations. So you'd actually just did like, you gave like the perfect example of just starting, right? Just testing out, using it as an experiment. Like let's test out being in a wild pack see what or that's like. a support pack and see, yeah, see what it's like. 
and see what feels more expansive, more possible, more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of wonder, right? Is like the, is the, is choosing not to go with the brain's version of, nah, we already know. Well, you know, you've never done that with six people, but it's probably better if you don't try. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You probably know, you probably know <laughs> enough about it to not need to try. Yeah. And I, Closed and off. I, I know that's true. I yeah. Already, yeah. Right. I'm good. I'm good. And I say, th- I feel like wonder offers me the opportunity to be like, well, let's see, let's just see, you know, it's like trying to like enroll an unenrolled kid into something like, well, let's just try. Let's just see. Let's just, let's just see. Let's see. Yes. And let's see with some awareness too. Yeah, right. It's right. so, it's so true. Like, I don't know if you, um, remember, but at, um, at Jonathan's camp, Jonathan Fields, good life camp, uh, which is where we met, I think, yeah. um, uh-huh. uh, I was, I was kind of mortified the first day I was there. The first time I went, uh-huh. um, I knew Jonathan, I thought, no problem. I love summer camp when I was a kid. It's only yeah. 45 minutes away right. in upstate New York, but I got there, I got there late. There were 400 people <laughs> there that I didn't know. And Jonathan's more of an introvert than I am. So he was nowhere to be found. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what am I, what am I doing? Why did I do this? Like four days with 400 strangers from around the world. I'm going to be in a dorm room. Oh my gosh. And so like I was making no connections with people in this sort of social gauntlet. So I went out into the woods. I went in, in, into the evergreens. I was like, what am I doing? And then I was like, and so that's where I got this sort of saying that I now teach people and myself over and over again, which was open up, don't size up. Open up, don't size up. Can I just be with people and ask them questions, listen to their stories and know that I'm not being sized up and I don't need to size them up. And so that's what the DIT experience is always yeah. an opportunity. Well, I think for. that like our, our fear of those things hijacks us from the experience of true belonging with one another, mm. right? Because, because at the end of the day, I think like we're all so busy trying to be enough and, and meet that master or that maker. And I, and I think that wonder for me opens up that like, it's not about that, right? It's really, it's like, it's already enough. Like we're already enough that we got born and we're in that wonder to begin with. Like, that's enough. And just to like, I mean, I really feel like the times that we've gotten to spend time at camp, like just to sit with each other is enough, right? Like just your presence is enough. Just my presence is enough. And I think as people, because we live in this productivity dominated culture, we're, we're not taught all of our lives that that our presence is enough and that our presence actually matters more in certain moments in life than any other thing you could ever throw at it like find me a person in grief and tell me that another loving soul sitting next to them and just being with them in a kind-hearted way isn't enough you know it matters so much it matters so much and i feel like we are in a time of a lot of collective grief um we have all lost so much over the past 16, 17 months, whether it was actual lives of loved ones, right. marriages have been lost, um, um, relationships, businesses, and just a loss of sense of what, what is real and true. And so I love that, that yes, our presence is often enough. And this is a whole different way, actually, of even looking at the workplace um, where, mm-hmm. where some real change but what um, I, I love that the work, like the work you've been doing around wanting to, about giving people permission and encouraging creative people, all people to think differently about how they work. Mm-hmm. I think that in some ways, this is the most ripe moment we've ever been in 
for people to read your book and to really consider that paradigm of like, can we all step into a new paradigm where we say we weren't actually that satisfied with the 85% burnout rate <laughs> or the 25% happy, whatever it was, right? Like yeah, yeah. that wasn't actually working to begin with. So right. why don't we just agree since the paradigm's already been busted, since the lightning already struck the house right. of the world, right? right? Like we're already looking at the charred bookshelves. So we might as well pick better bookshelves that we actually want now. Like why not get a system we really want? Why not get less, better and deeper with each other, with our work, with, our, with you know? It's so true. It's so true. And I really, I, again, like I just see the opportunities and the possibilities and I'm tracking the people who are also like seeing the possibilities and the yeah. opportunities and who are not trying to go back and recreate something and who are also checking from a personal level to a cultural level to a workplace and organizational level, not going back to the way things were. And I was just talking to a former CEO who's now president of a company about this very thing. He's like, you know, I think my role is to kind of watch how are we coming back into the workplace, like the physical workplace, mm. to make sure, like these were almost his words, to make sure we're not going to just go back to all of the pathologies that were already existing in the company. And, yeah. when, and when I've listened to him, I'm like, okay, there's hope, yeah, there's hope for I, many of us. And I think that I hear the hope on the, on the side of the employees that are, that feel like they're having better boundaries around their humanity. Yes. I don't know how that plays out. Cause I've never had a corporate, I've never worked for anybody else. So I don't really know, but I, but I, it seems like the idea of sitting in the cubicle without the window, without the break, without the, whatever, there's sort of like, like a, one of my clients said, I don't, I'm not interested in the two hour commute anymore. Like, I don't care what I have to do, but I, yeah. and, and I want to preface that by saying that's also a privilege and like, it that's is. A, right. So I, is. I, it's like, I was thinking the same right? thing. There's a lot like of privilege. Not, yeah. There's a ton of privilege. Like not everybody is getting to experience this as like, Oh, I wonder what I get to do now. Oh, yes. You know, like that is really not reality <clears throat> across the board. So that feels important to preface for those that it is, uh, it's, I feel like it's even more important to do it well now. To, to, I feel like for those of us in that situation, let us please build a paradigm that serves all better well now, right? Like I, let's I create the agree. structure better now. I completely agree. Yes. And, you know, I'm always, I'm, I've become increasingly so profoundly aware of the layers of privilege I have and that I live in. And, um, but I will say this on behalf of, wonder that is not mine it's just always here it is our birthright and it's not a privilege and um there are like wonder cuts across every possible division that said those of us with privilege and those people with positions of power also do have the opportunity just as you say to reimagine possibilities or maybe they're not holding on to the power that they have in the past and sort of realign the institutions and the organizations that were built uh, in this culture that we're talking about, right? They were built with certain mindsets yeah. of, this, of this culture of busyness that, that we've been talking about. They, they institutions that were built in the, I'm mixing metaphors, but in the water that we've been swimming in for so right. long. Yeah. It's really important. It feels really important to build different paradigms. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And to keep these conversations going and to keep, again, can 
continuing to connect and not to think that we must realize our better futures, our, our, our future possibilities alone. Right. Yeah. And that just takes a lot of personal, personal awareness and personal development work side by side, I think. Yeah. And transpersonal development. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. 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 That's a really fair point. All those, all of the bigger. Hmm. So grateful to talk to you, Jeffrey. Every time I get to see you, I'm just, I'm happier. <laughs> Me too, Robin. You know, I do. I feel like, I feel like it's such an important thing to say, right? Like it's hmm. like, I feel like it's important to say the things other people aren't, don't say, even if it sounds yeah. funny, because I think that we, I just watch as a, as a role, as my role as a seer, I feel like I see people going about things and not saying the things. And I, and then we don't know what matters about us. Right? Yeah. Like if I don't say to you, Hey, this really matters to me. And I really appreciate you. And just being in your presence helps me. Like it inspires me to want to be more peaceful and to like, reminds me to sit in awe. And when I talk to Charlie, it reminds me to think about productivity from this like global concept. And right. And when I yeah. talk to, it's like, it's a beautiful thing that we get to share in each other's presence. And when we choose to get out of the busyness of it and be in the wonder of each other, then I feel like there's really something powerful that happens for all of us. And no, even that almost feels like the best solution to any kind of problem is like, well, then how can we just be in that together better? Because the problem is going to be easier solved or handled or felt or transitioned by a sense of connection and belonging and open-heartedness really. Yeah, that's beautiful. You actually just articulated and expressed and practiced a beautiful part of wonder, which is the facet of admiration, the root of which Mira is wonder. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's mirror, right? So you just like beautifully, you saw me and you said a beautiful appreciation that I just want to soak in. Mm -hmm. um, it's such an important practice for everybody to hear that's listening yeah, in as well, right. is to take the time not only to pause, gaze, but also praise. So pause, see, and also appreciate like say the things to people that, that matter. I just like, as a side note, I go to this cafe where I get my macchiato and the 30 something guy that is always like, he's, you know, he's like always doing this. And like, you know, and sometimes it gets really busy and I've been checking in with him. I'm like, you know, I really, and I always express appreciation for how he shows up. I was like, how are you doing? He's like, ah, and he wasn't really taking care of himself. So I actually just bought him a monthly pass to the local yoga studio i surprised awesome. him with that as out of appreciation yeah. and uh he's like oh do i do i show up stressed i was like you told me you were stressed uh, but i that's not how i see you i see a great potential yeah it's funny i was talking to a girlfriend of mine yesterday she was she was really having a hard time and was really was feeling very aware of like her shortcomings and the things in her the places and parts of herself that she would like to improve and i said yeah but there's what about amplifying what about just taking a moment to sit and amplifying what's already just awesome about you? Because already I think beautiful. our own brains want, my own brain wants to focus on what I'm not good at or what I'm still like, where I still haven't and where I still need to. And like, and I think that the power of each other is like, even if that's the state you're in today, even if that wasn't what you felt brave enough to say coming into this, like having a moment to just acknowledge each other and say that you matter and, and acknowledge why that is to me and what's great about you. It's like, if we did that for each other as often as would be lovely, we would not forget what's great about us. 
because our brain forgets. But if other people serve to remind each other and one another why what's great about us, we're not going to forget as much. And we will continue to like thrive and live into the amplification of our greatness instead of this constant focus on like what's not working. Yeah, what's not working, what we feel is deficit. Yeah, I was working with somebody a, a few months ago when um, his anxiety was really amplifying and amping up and he kept saying, I'm, I'm anxious, I am anxious, I am anxious. It was like this ongoing pattern. And I said, that's, that's, prob- that's probably true. Like there is probably a neurological reality there. But do you, do you care about the future? Do you care about your family? Do you care about our world? He's like, yeah. I was like, that's true also. So what if there was like a wonder mirror that like looked at that downer pattern of you're constantly saying to yourself, I am anxious, I am anxious, but then more likely said to yourself, I care about the future. Mm-hmm. I care about, the, how does that feel? They're both real, right? but it's like, which one do you want to pay attention to? And as you said, amplify. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation, Jeffrey. Thank you, Robin, yeah. for the opportunity and the conversation. I'm in, I'm in New York yeah. pretty often, so I have to make the drive up. Please do. Please yeah. do. I'll yeah. come check out your coffee person. <laughs> Excellent. I feel, I feel Excellent. like I, I, I'm hallucinating that he does like all the like interesting designs on the top of the coffee. He feels <laughs> he, like that guy. <laughs> he is that guy. He is that guy. And it's kind of a small cafe setup. And there's sometimes like 10 people like waiting in line. He's like oh. doing all the food orders and the macchiato and everything else. Yeah. So yeah. Then he really, really needed that yoga thing. <laughs> he was very appreciative. So yeah. Good. Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't get? Do you want to say to anybody or, or any final words that you feel haven't been said? Mm, I would just, I, I would just invite everyone um, listening in. Thank you. First of all, for, for listening in and, um, just check in with yourself and ask yourself what is real and true for me now and what could be real and true for me next and then share that with somebody don't keep it to yourself spread the wonder yeah that's beautiful be a wonder mirror <laughs> be a wonder mirror <laughs> right yeah. don't be a wonder wall be a wonder mirror <laughs> i love that yeah exactly that'll be our next that's our next call yeah exactly yeah 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 um also where can people find you yeah you can find uh find me at Mm trackingwonder.com and uh yeah maybe we'll follow up and send you a a special guide or maybe even a special uh wonder assessment yeah awesome it'll be something fun for you guys and thanks thanks so much jeffrey thank you robin it was a delight You've been listening to the Robin Ivy podcast. I want to thank you for spending this time together today. And if you enjoyed this episode and haven't done so already, please subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, leave me a review. This gets more listeners like you and I to hear the messages my guests share. That would mean so much to me. Last thing, the thoughts and views of each of my guests does not reflect my own personal viewpoints or opinions on topics discussed. This podcast is an open forum for dialogue, kindness and insightful expression and this often means looking at life through a new lens i hope you love today's episode and invite you to join me once again at the table on the robin ivy podcast